This is Pastor to Pastor, a podcast of InnoBTS and Level College. Pastor to Pastor is here to help you lay a biblical foundation for your ministry. Welcome back to our podcast, Pastor to Pastor. Uh, This semester, we are uh, looking at a new question, uh, moving on to the question of what is preaching. And so we're beginning this semester by looking at a couple of important passages. Uh, We've looked at 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. And today, uh, we're going to move on to Acts chapter 11, verses 25 to 26. So I'm glad to be here with uh, Adam Hughes, continue to enjoy this process of of looking through God's Word together and and answering some questions that we both think are very important for uh, the pastor to have a, a good good grip on, right? What does it mean to be a pastor? And now what does it mean for us to preach? So uh, let's jump in uh, to Acts chapter 11. I'll read verses 25 to 26, and then I'll let you kind of uh, take it away with giving us some background to the passage that, that you think would be important for us Sounds to understand. Good. So, Looking forward to it. Acts chapter 11, uh, verses 25 and 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Adam, this is obviously a relatively brief passage. So one of the things we want to do is is set this passage in its context in the book of Acts in particular. So uh, what do you think are some important things for us to understand about the context of this passage? Yeah, for just a moment, and this is probably farther than we need to go, and certainly they can look and read more about this on the website when we talk about the genre analysis or the genre background. But like you just said, it's a brief passage, and it is important to say these two verses actually are a part. There, there, there are a couple verses that are a part of a larger sub-narrative that in Acts is a part of a larger section of narrative. And I do think that's important to say that. We're not just trying to rip something out of context here. We're understanding and interpreting it in context. But for the topic that we're talking about today, it's these two verses that really, that really carry the weight. With that being said, let me also say, I, I think it's wise for us just kind of to, to teach as we talk. We do recognize there's also a difference in interpreting narrative than interpreting epistles, mm-hmm. which is where we've spent the most of our time up to this up to this point. There are some different characteristics by nature, which means there's some different there's some different processes that you need to employ for interpreting. And so certainly we want to take that into consideration. One of the things, and I would even say this about this passage of scripture, is in some ways narrative teaching is much less direct. Mm-hmm. In other words, we we have a lot of passages that are descriptive more than they're prescriptive. You don't have God through an author saying, therefore, do this. You have God through the author saying, here are the things that happen. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm always careful to say that doesn't in any way make it any less authoritative. Right. It, it still carries the absolute complete weight of God's authority with it. But we usually come to the principles that we come to that we apply as teachers and preachers of God's Word and narrative in a much less direct way. We see what God did in history. We see how this unfolded. And then from that, we learn something about the nature of God, how God works, His character, and how He works through the church, the nature of the church. And it's from that that we then can make these principles that still carry weight today. So with all that said, we certainly, we've arrived at the principles that we're going to look at today based on that. So I just wanted to give a brief word about the context of narratives, since this is one of the first passages, I believe, that we've really looked at in this podcast that's a narrative. Yeah, I think and I think right. that does, I think that does give some instruction for how our listeners should approach, approach narrative. So you can read more on that on the website. Secondly, 
I think uh, there's a couple of other uh, contextual principles here or contextual ideas here that are in place to understand what's going on in ver- verse 25 and 26. Uh, first of all, understanding that what we see probably from about chapter 6 in Acts to about the end of chapter 11 is the second major section of the book of Acts. And so here's what you have in the book of Acts up to this point. You kind of have the prologue, and then you have the witness in Jerusalem. Obviously, the Holy Spirit coming, the witness in Jerusalem that really fills most of the space in, in chapter 2 through chapter 5. Mm-hmm. And then beginning with the, uh, the, 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 what we typically think is the beginning of these servants. Some have said the, the first deacons in the church, Acts chapter 6, that arose because of the dispute amongst the widows, which leads to the arrest, the, the trial, and the martyrdom of Stephen. And then Acts chapter 8, the persecution of the church. That begins the witness to a, a wider witness, mm-hmm. if you will. And then what we have here in Acts chapter 11 is the the ending, if you will, of that first part of that wider witness. Now, finally, the church in Antioch, if you will, kind of concludes the birth, the beginning of that church in Antioch, which really we see in Acts chapter 11 verses 19 through 30, if you will, is 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 a conclusion to that second major section of Acts, which is this narrative, the wider witness. The church itself in Antioch becomes so significant, I think, for two reasons. Number one, just understand that it's not the church in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's not where, if we would say it this way, where, where the ministry after Jesus' ascension and the coming of the Spirit began. And so in some ways, we would expect all the activity that we're about to see happen would have originated in Jerusalem. Not that the church in Jer- Jerusalem loses its significance, we learn in Acts later that it does it, mm-hmm. but it is significant to say here's this new church that bursts uh, out of the end of this second section of Acts that then seems to be the epicenter of the ministry and mission, specifically the Gentile mission that happens from that point. And is sending out missionaries, sending out right? missionaries, absolutely. So with that in mind, I think the second part of the context that's important is um, this is the first church that's reported to be widely made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. And we see that in the in the section, the passage that precedes verses 25 and 26. So I think that's significant to say, right, this church is not just a Jewish church. So then to see the activities that ha- happen there are really, really profound. Mm. And then as you just alluded to, what will happen next in chapter 13, we'll come back to this church which we see Barnabas and Paul there, or Saul, as it were, and they will be sent out for their first wider missionary journey from this church. So all that in mind, what's happening in the life of the church that you just read in verses 25 and 26 take on a significance when we set it in that context of what's going on in the narrative of Acts. Mm. Well, that's helpful context for us to understand in in these two brief verses, right? So we we always want to encourage people to put verses in their context and understand them contextually. So with all that being said, uh, especially as we think about this question of what is preaching or what is teaching, and we'll come back to that again over and over this semester, what are some things that you would, uh, some principles that you would draw out from this passage that specifically relate to the preaching ministry of the church? Yeah, first of all, in verse 25, and again, this is indirect, right? It's, it's, it's alluded to because it's a narrative, but I think the beginning place, and to some extent, this bridges the gap between what we talked about last semester and this semester, what is a pastor, and then what is, what is preaching. We, we begin in verse 25 by, by asking the question, who did the teaching? 
And and again, going back to the larger context, Barnabas is this character that we met earlier uh, in Acts chapter 9 after the conversion of Saul in Jerusalem. Well, actually in Acts chapter 4 is an encourager, and then we see him again in Acts chapter 9, and he helps Paul there. And then here he's sent from Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, he is sent to Antioch to see what's going on. And when he sees all this activity, he encourages them with a resolute heart to remain faithful to the Lord. It's not stated, but it seems that he believes there's a need in the church. There's some, forgive me for saying it this way, there's some maturity, there's some discipleship that needs to occur in this church, and they don't have the leaders to do it. And Barnabas looks, and it seems that he goes, well, I don't have the capacity to do this on my own. But uh, I know someone that I saw something in that apparently is qualified to do it. Let me go find him and bring him back. And together there's an activity for the good of the body that will meet the need of the body that, that, that we can do together. So, so all that to say, uh, we begin the passage with Barnabas going to Tarsus to look for Saul. And he's going to bring him back and they're going to do something. So we ask the question, who are the leaders here? What do they do and what are their qualifications? I think that leads to... Again, what we've been saying over and over again, there are men that are qualified and called. They have specific characteristics that they're called to have by God's word that are called to lead the church and lead the church in a very specific endeavor, and that's the teaching ministry of the church. And so we begin by looking at this passage and asking the question, who is Barnabas, why is he there, and why did he go look for Saul? Yeah. I mean, there's so much we could say there. I know you've made the point at points last semester of, this issue of disconnecting the office of pastor from the preaching or teaching ministry of the church, and that's a whole complicated thing, but I think a couple of things are important there, that there's a connection there as I think what we're arguing, right? That there are certain um, men that God calls to be pastors who then uh, engage in this sort of authoritative preaching or teaching ministry of the church. Uh, one area I see that this getting broken down a lot is, um, and I, I know we'll touch on this when we get to later passages, probably like 1 Corinthians 2, but... Uh, just for now, some people hear preaching and they think that means just proclaiming the gospel. And you and I are, are even now beginning to try to argue for a distinction between those two Absolutely. things, right? We're not just saying, when we say preaching, we don't just mean proclaiming the gospel. Uh, we are meaning, in a sense, uh, those called by God uh, to lead the church uh, as we saw last time, using the scriptures for their intended purpose. Absolutely, that's it. And, and and two things I would say there is that in no way is you and I minimizing the need to proclaim the gospel, mm-hmm. or that that in any way is is less important in the world and in the life of the church. But what we are saying is that's not where it ends, and there perhaps is a even more specific ministry for which the shepherd in the life of the body is called, not just proclaiming the gospel to the lost, but teaching the word to the redeemed. Which leads, if you will, to the second principle that I think we see in this passage of Scripture, not just who did what, but but what did they do? Mm -hmm. And and I think, actually, in this passage, there's a a couple things that the text indicates they did. Uh, First of all, they were gathered together with the church. And there's a couple things here, Charlie, that that I really think need to be pointed out. I think we're going to get the, the the word that's used of what they did is they taught, mm-hmm. and we're and so we're going to get. And I think some people might would say, well, what's being referred to here is 
one-on-one discipleship or some type of small group ministry. And I, again, I'm not indicating that any of those ways those things are wrong, but because of some intentional language that you used in this passage of Scripture for what is meant by they were gathered together among the church, uh, I, I think I think something different than small group or one-on-one discipleship is being talked about. I think we're talking about public uh, the gathered church being taught here. Uh, it also says, by the way, that they did it for an entire year. I want to come back to that in, in just a moment. But if you look at the end, it says they taught uh, taught a considerable crowd. And so what what what's significant here, first of all, with an activity that they, that they did was it appears you had a public assembly of the church for an entire year, and Barnabas and Paul publicly were doing something in that setting. And and so I guess what I'm trying to say there is what we're reading them do, and I want to circle back around to this in a moment, is closely akin to what you and I and most people would would today call the Sunday morning preaching ministry Mm -hmm. of the church. That's what's happening here. Uh, Also, just point this out, the second activity, so the first activity they did is they assembled together as a crowd, as the church, publicly. And the second thing they did when they were assembled together is they taught for an entire year. I think the entire year is is really purposeful there in this passage. Does that mean that's all they did for an entire year? I'm certainly not arguing that. But it is interesting in the in the context of this church in this setting, what is the one thing that Luke chooses to report on mm-hmm. that they did for an entire year? They taught. And what is meant by they taught this crowd for an entire year? Well, again, a uh, little bit of biblical theology here that I know we'll get on to get into later, but just connect the dots here for a moment. Uh, if we go back to Acts chapter two, after Peter preaches, proclaims the gospel this first time, and three thousand are added, then in verses forty-one, forty-two through forty-seven of Acts chapter two, we have this summary statement of what was going on within that church in Jerusalem, and four or five things are mentioned there. But one thing says that they were d- daily devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine. Uh, and and the same some of the same language the same derivative of the term this concept of teaching is used in Acts chapter two so whatever more than likely was occurring and happening through teaching in Acts chapter eleven was probably the same thing that was happening in Acts chapter two right the right. same thing that's being taught well what was that well again I think you can go back to some extent to again the Great Commission Jesus's words in Matthew twenty eight what was one of the means by which we make disciples teaching them to observe or obey everything I've commanded. So all that to say, what was it that they were doing when they were teaching? When we connect all these dots, which we'll do more later, I have a hard time of not believing essentially what they were teaching was the Word of Christ, what we now know is codified as the Word of God, the Bible. Mm -hmm. So for an entire year, they might have done a lot of different things, but one thing they certainly focused on and were uniquely committed to, according to Luke, was the gathering together of the public body for the instruction from these two men to the body of the very Word of God in the life of the church. I think a couple of things that I would I would just echo there, and one of them we probably should have talked about in Second Timothy now that I think about it here. But So two, two things that I think are important, one of which is the audience and one of which is the content, right? So I think this is important for us to distinguish. So the audience here is the church, 
right? This is not, as I think you're pointing out, sort of evangelistic, which clearly happens, happens. in the book of Acts. Yeah, right? actually happens earlier in, in, in that led to the birth of this church. Right. So we're arguing for a distinction between those two things, the public proclamation of the gospel for the purpose of calling people to repentance and faith in Christ, which is certainly going to happen in the context of the assembly of the of church. Of course it so, is, right. But here we're arguing for a different audience, which is the church, which is now again what we see this word teaching again used, right? We, we've seen Titus 1 and qualifications refers to teaching. 1 Timothy 3 refers to teaching. Even 2 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul says, Oh, you, oh, man of God, you know, servant of God, also refers to being able to teach. So, so the teaching of God's people, his word. Uh, but the other thing is content, and this is why we probably should have talked about this under 2 Timothy 3, is there's some word studies on the we- website that relate to what's the content of what's being used. Because especially in Acts chapter 11, we recognize uh, certainly what we now call the Bible wasn't, quote unquote, completed at that point, right? right? So under the, the website on 2 Timothy 5, chapter 3, and I'll just try to briefly make this point here because we've moved on to another passage. What does that mean? I think it means clearly the Old Testament, but then also the teaching of the apostles, which would then become what we call the New Testament. New Testament, right. So, I mean, I don't, I don't want to belabor this point now, but it is an obvious implication that we need to teach people the Old Testament for one. Absolutely. Right? That, that what we talked about under 2 Timothy 3, what's useful for teaching correct doctrine and teaching people how to live and how not to live, all those different kinds of things we talked about, that includes both the Old Testament and uh, what we call the New Testament. And so I, I just wanted to briefly make that point and, here. And I, again, we don't have time to, I know, to look at all of this, but to to, to stretch your point even further, I think by when, when Jesus in Matthew 28 says, teaching to observe everything I commanded you, that leads to a very important question, what are the words of Christ? Mm-hmm. And my argument would be, by implication, it's not just the red-letter words in the gospel. I, and I don't think that's just what he's talking about. Right. I think there's enough that he said in places like Luke 24 and that we read that, and I'll come back to this in a moment, that Peter himself writes in Second Peter about even calling Paul's writings at the time the script, equal par with the scriptures. I think by implication, we're talking about all of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament. I, I really think by implication, even though that might have not completely all existed by then, I think the characteristics of what Jesus talked about can be applied to those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, to your point, certainly we mean the Old Testament, but I think by implication and extension, we mean the New Testament as well. Sure. Um, I, I've, I've made people mad by this before, but I actually believe in the New Testament. People go, when was the when did the canon when was the canon formed? And people want to say, well, with Constantine, right? But I. That leads to a completely different conversation, but the question is, are we talking about an authoritative list of books, or are we talking about a list of authoritative books? Right, and right. if we're talking about a list of authoritative books, then the canon, then, then Scripture became canon the moment it was penned. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the Bible itself, the New Testament itself, Charlie, has what I would call a canon consciousness. Mm-hmm. Right. So I know that goes further than we wanted to go on here, but when you look at what were Barnabas and Paul doing in Acts chapter 11, the, in, my, in my honest opinion, I don't think I'm stretching, stretching anything, they were teaching the Word of God. Mm-hmm. They were teaching the Scriptures, which yeah. certainly meant the New Testament, I mean Old Testament, but by extension has 
has ramifications for what we know as the New Testament as well. Well, and so, so if you look at, you know, in Acts chapter 11, the question then becomes, well, is that in the New Testament as well? And we're, we're arguing there basically, well, in some senses, it's the teaching of the apostles, which then becomes, becomes what we would right, call the New exactly. Testament. But ironically, the bigger issue now is more, does that include the Old Testament from a practical standpoint, right? right? So if you look at a lot of preaching in a lot of churches today, um, it doesn't always include that teaching of the Old Testament, right? I remember uh, I preached through, I think it was Malachi, and um, so preaching through one of the Old Testament prophets. And, and, you know, if you spent much time in the Old Testament prophets, you know it can be um, pretty intense there at the beginning, right? Calls to repentance and, and judgment is coming, very severe language. And I just remember one of the comments I got after preaching Malachi 1 was, and are we going to go through this whole book? And I'm like, yeah, we are going to go through this whole <laughs> right, book, you know, right. because, you know, I, I think now we need to be reminded that we preach the whole counsel of God, right? And so what does that mean for us? It doesn't just mean the New Testament, uh, but if we really want to equip people for the work of ministry, they need to understand the whole of scriptures, right? From Genesis all the way to Revelation. And so, yeah, I, I think it's a little... I don't know if ironic is the right word, but initially the question becomes... Is the New Testament is the included? New Testament now where we that, are is, right. is it the Old Testament and included? I, yeah. And I think both you and I, you just stated it perfectly. We have the conviction that both are absolutely needed and profitable mm-hmm. for the body. Yeah, I, I preached through Deuteronomy a couple years ago, and I mean, we spent over half a year in Deuteronomy, but um, I, I mean, that is that is God's Word to us, right? And, Absolutely. And, and that as well is beneficial. So I, I think we need to be reminded. Interesting enough, for Christmas, the church that I'm interim at right now, I actually preached through Ruth at Christmas. Okay. Yeah. And I do think there's some, there's some important connections to what we see with what we celebrate as Christmas. But nonetheless, the point is, the point I'm making is, uh, the Old Testament is God's word for us. It's authoritative God's word for us. All of this leads, I think, to the final thing, the final principle that we see in Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. And so it's not just who did what, it's not just what did they do, but it was what was the result. And I think that's like that last phrase we see there, and there's so much here we could talk about, but I'll try to make it really simple. And the And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Just think about that for a moment. I think this is where, when I was probably beleaguering the point of why the context of this of this passage is so important, really comes in. Didn't happen in Jerusalem. Didn't happen some other church. It's here that, as a result of the gathering together, these called men gathering the body together for a year and teaching them, resulted in them being called Christians. So many things we can say here. First of all, uh, the term Christian, I believe, is used three times in the New Testament, and scholars will tell you every time it's used, there's good indication that it's not those inside the circle calling mm-hmm. themselves that. Mm-hmm. It's those outside that are actually putting that label on them. And I think the text, I think the the, the language of the text in Acts 11 might, might indicate as much. Some have even said perhaps it began as a, as a little bit of a making fun of them, a byword. Right. And uh, nonetheless, the idea is here are here's these group of people. There's the people in Antioch that certainly had heard of the reputation reputation of Jesus. They knew what Jesus was like, even if they hadn't seen him or heard him teach themselves, that, that Jesus had a, a far-reaching reputation in this part of the world at the time, and he has some certain characteristics. So after this year, this, this church 
begins to represent enough of what Christ looked like outwardly. They're, they're associated with Christ enough outwardly that those on the outside look at them and go, man, they're a whole lot like that Christ character. Mm-hmm. They're, they're Christ-likeians. Mm-hmm. They're Christians. They're Christians. And it's interesting that now that's the term that we use for ourselves, but according to the Word, this is where it first happened. Mm-hmm. I think we do well to say maybe not the only reason why, but but what led to this result? What was directly done that resulted in them looking, acting, living like Christ so much that those outside the church called them that? Man, I have a hard not time not going back and saying the gathering of the church for the teaching of the Word that happened for an entire year, which goes back to, to some extent, what you were saying there in 2 Timothy 3, right? right. That uh, you've got the, you've got the um, teaching, you've got the reproof, you've got the correction, you've got the training in righteousness. I have a hard time believing all those things weren't happening. Yeah. And it resulted in, therefore, now these, these believers in Antioch, both Jews and Gentiles, are living like Christ. And those on the outside say, those are like Christ. They're, mm-hmm. they're Christians. Now, Charlie... It's strange to me how fascinated and uh, and in awe we are when something like this happens when it's simply just believers in the Word doing exactly what Christ called them to. Can I go back to the Great Commission one more time? <laughs> Should it, it appears to me that this church in Antioch simply was doing nothing more or nothing less of what Christ had commanded occur for the Great Commission to happen. Baptize those that believed within the context of the church, taught them to obey everything Christ commanded. Should it then be surprising that the result that Jesus says will occur, the, the, the result that Jesus calls us to in the Great Commission is in fact what occurred when they did it in this particular location, in this particular local congregation? It's fascinating to us, perhaps perhaps because we don't see that happen as much, but to me this is just a natural outcome or, or implication of a church obeying the precepts of Jesus' commission accomplishing what Jesus said was that actual commission. And that's the, that's the creating the maturing of disciples. Yeah. I think there's so many implications there for today as we kind of wrap up. I mean, I think in some senses is we'll get into what is the church and, and the gathering of the church at some point in the future, I suppose. But as we think again, just beginning to piece all this together, what is a pastor, right? A, a, a God called man who's, 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 sort of appointed as a, as a leader, a shepherd, or, or shepherds, maybe if there's, you know, multiple pastors there, right, over the people of God. Now we're beginning to piece it in together to, okay, what does that person do? And one of the things clearly that they do is uh, stand before God's people <laughs> using God's Word for God's intended purpose. And I, it sounds so simple in a sense, right? And I think sometimes there's a temptation to overly complicate that or I would even say in a day and age uh, where everybody can read the Bible for themselves now, uh, which I don't think we want to minimize that. I'm in the middle of a 90-day Bible reading plan right now, trying to to read Scripture, the whole Bible in 90 days. I think things like that are great, but none of that is a substitute, I think, for uh, the, the faithful shepherd of the church standing up before God's people and proclaiming God's Word to them. Uh, using God's word for God's intended purpose. So uh, that that's not going to, uh, you know, <laughs> may not sound trendy, <laughs> right? It may not sound 
uh, revolutionary because in a sense it's not. It's what the church has is, is been called to do for the last 2,000 years. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, walk us through this passage and really focus us in on uh, sort of, of what is the preaching ministry of the pastor. So any, anything else you want to add there before we wrap up? Amen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we, we'll continue on with a couple more passages as we kind of begin to, to, again, try to come up with an answer to this question of what is preaching. We've certainly touched on that already, but we'll have a few more passages that we look at before we uh, kind of move on to theology and begin to build up a, a sort of a, a, a biblical answer to this question is what is preaching. So uh, thank you again for joining us. We certainly certainly appreciate you taking your time to be a part of this and hope it's been a beneficial uh, and an encouraging time for you. Thanks for listening. For more resources on pastoral ministry, visit us at faithfulpastor.com. And to learn more about training to become a pastor, visit us at nobts.edu.